and welcome to another episode in this sixth season of the Equip Project podcast. Our last episode was a first for us, Jim, because we recorded it live. How did you find that format? It was really nice to meet so many of our listeners in person. Um, I think we might need to think a bit about how questions are submitted, uh, because we got quite a few old chestnuts that probably weren't very relevant uh, to the non-Christians in the room. But people seemed to find it helpful, so that was really good. Yeah, and your unpopular opinion about everyone moving back to instant coffee, well, that, that was a real low point on the night, Jim. It was not well received. It went down like a lead balloon. However, I am simply a man ahead of, of his time. <laughs> Just yesterday, the, <laughs> the Spectator magazine published an article called In Defense of Instant Coffee. So I, I feel emboldened to offer my own coffee-making a class for, for Gen Z, <laughs> Ollie. You know, add a heap teaspoon of gold blend granules into a mug, Followed by two-thirds of an inch of cold milk, fill the mug with boiling water, stir briskly, et voila, an acceptable drink of coffee. So that would be my class. And in fact, I was just thinking I, I could develop an entire lifestyle <laughs> brand around this thing because, you know, it's for people who like Dell computers, who prefer email to WhatsApp, people who use their phones to make phone calls rather than using it as a device to photograph their food. I mean, it could be the next big thing, Ollie. It could be, Jim. Um, but I'm not sure it will be. But I admire <laughs> I admire your tenacity and your vision. Um, I think crack on with it, Jim. I'm intrigued to follow this journey. Yeah. You'll have to follow it on email, of course. <laughs> or fax, most likely. You'll be faxing things to me before long. Um, in, in this season, Jim, we're taking books of the Bible and we're asking, what is the big idea behind this book? What would be missing from the canon of Scripture if this particular book was not included in it? And in this particular episode, we want to talk about First and Second Samuel. In the original Hebrew manuscript, Samuel was actually a single book, but it was divided into by the translators who produced the Septuagint. So for our purposes today, we're going to treat 1 and 2 Samuel as a single book. And let's just think for a moment about the historical background of Samuel, because it's really dark. The period of Israel's history was known as the Judges, and that had left the nation at its lowest ever point. Israel was riddled with idolatry and corruption and violence, and it looked as if the wheels had come off God's plan for his people. But Samuel records the rise of King David, and David transforms the life of the nation. By the time his reign ends, he is an emperor. Israel had every reason to believe that it might end up as one of the major players in the ancient Near East, like Assyria or Babylon. But not long after David dies, the nation is torn apart and it divides into the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. The northern kingdom is then essentially destroyed by Assyria. Meanwhile, Judah limps on as just a minor player for a few centuries until the exile to Babylon. So Samuel records the rise of Israel from its lowest point in history in terms of building a stable and strong society. And that gives us our first clue about the book's big idea. The issue being raised by Samuel is the question of leadership. So what does the book look like when viewed through that lens, Jim? Well, you're quite right to say that Samuel is about leadership, but it would be wrong to rush straight into writing a commentary on Samuel called something like Top 10 Helpful Lessons for Christian Leaders. Of course, there are some important lessons to be gleaned from the stories recorded in Samuel, but there is a deeper application. Think again about your generic question about this season. What would be missing from the canon of Scripture if the book of Samuel was not included? If all it gave us was helpful lessons about Christian leadership, then the canon would not have lost much if Samuel had been excised. So what is that deeper application then? 
God is supremely interested in good governance. It is an essential aspect of his plan of salvation. Think of that moment in the book of the Revelation 5, when John says, I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside. Now, that scroll represents what we might call the title deeds of the universe. But who is worthy to rule the universe in the ages to come? I mean, it's not a question of power here. It's a question of worthiness. Who will have the character and the skills to govern us wisely so that God's new society won't degenerate into a mess like the one recorded in the book of Judges? The answer to that question is given to John. He watches as the scroll, the the title deeds of the universe, are handed to the risen Christ. But the really interesting thing about that moment is that Christ is called the Root of David. Okay? So the ancient stories we find in Samuel raise really profound questions about how the universe should be governed. How can a just, compassionate, peaceful society be sustained over the long term? What sort of leadership will deliver that vision? Now, Samuel itself mightn't give us the answers, but it maps out the problem space, if you like. And just as a bit of an aside, that's a really important function of the Old Testament. In my childhood, Christians were very fond of a hymn called Christ is the Answer. Well, before that assertion makes any sense, we need to understand the question. And so Samuel raises this profound question about how, in God's plan of salvation, the universe should be governed in the ages to come. In the past, you've said that 1 and 2 Samuel are the closest we get in Scripture to a literary drama like the ones written by Shakespeare. What do you mean by that? At its most basic level, Samuel is a work of literary genius. Uh, I was actually talking to a student after our Equip Live event, and he asked me how to get into reading the Bible. And I discovered he happened to be studying English at uni. Uh, So I advised him to read Samuel and to read it as literature. I mean, take the character of Saul, for example. I mean, it's drawn with a skill that's up there with Macbeth or Lear. He is a complex, tragic figure. We maybe should explain that at the heart of 1 Samuel is this dramatic conflict between two kings. So we've got King Saul and we've got King David. Uh, And Saul represents the type of ruler that the world respects. He was a big man, not just physically, but in terms of his personality. Saul was Israel's first king. But as the story progresses, his character flaws emerge. Flaws that, in the end, bring about his downfall. David was God's choice for the nation's leader, but he had to spend many years living as an outlaw because Saul felt threatened by him. Saul made many attempts to kill David, but David refuses to kill Saul and stage a coup. He continues to live as an outlaw until God moves in history. That's right. In 1 Samuel, David rarely puts a foot wrong. He is the polar opposite to Saul. But in 2 Samuel, we then find the story of David's transition to power, and he starts off well, but then comes that fateful moment of failure when he commits adultery with Bathsheba. And the rest of 2 Samuel records the catastrophic consequences of that moral failure. So we can already see that 1 and 2 Samuel aren't black and white fables, where the good guys triumph over the bad guys. The difficult question about exercising power flushes out deep character flaws in both Saul and David. And by opening those difficulties up, the author is inviting us to think about the qualities of a perfect ruler, someone capable of governing the universe. Yeah, that's lesson 101. Leadership isn't about gaining and exercising power. It's all about character. Abraham Lincoln once said, nearly all men can stand adversity. But if you want to test a man's character, give him power. 
there is something about power that surfaces deep character flaws in people. You see, when we, we first meet Saul, he's a, he's a rather gormless, awkward young man looking for his donkeys, but he's perfectly likable. I, I sometimes wonder if Saul would have made such a mess of his life if he had remained as a private citizen. Perhaps the most famous quote about power is that it corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Now, that principle has huge implications for the universe as a whole. How can we get a ruler who can govern with absolute authority without himself becoming corrupt? Okay, so we've thought about the big idea in Samuel. It raises the question about how God will raise up a ruler who can govern the universe with justice and wisdom and compassion. For the rest of this conversation, then, Jim, I'd like to focus on three themes. First, we'll talk about Saul and why he was the wrong type of leader. Then we'll consider David in his years as an outlaw on the run from Saul's armies. In this part of his life, we see David at his best. In fact, David looks very much like the Lord Jesus in this part of his life. And then finally, we'll think of David's moral failure in 2 Samuel and the terrible consequences that flowed from that event. So choosing the wrong leader, the hallmarks of a true leader, and when leaders go wrong. So let's think about the trajectory of Saul's life. I mean, it is, in the technical sense, a tragic tale. When we first meet him, Saul is enthusiastic and likable. He's a bit impatient, you might think, but in those early days, the reader might justifiably think that the prophet Samuel is a bit hard on poor Saul. But then, as the story unfolds, we see that what we thought was just a minor flaw in his character is actually this massive structural fault that cracks his personality to the core, a profound problem that means that Saul is unable to trust God. We discover that religion for Saul could never be more than superstition and ritual. No matter how many ecstatic experiences he had, in the end, what do we see? We see him organize a seance with a witch in order to get spiritual guidance. And it's Saul's refusal to listen to and to obey God's word that triggers his descent into paranoia, jealousy, and murderous rage. I mean, his story ends in suicide. I mean, it's a terrible story, really. But the first clue we get about Saul's inability to rule comes when he first meets David. I said earlier that Saul was a big man. He, he stood head and shoulders over everyone else in Israel. Um, but what is the problem with being a big man? Well, one day you will inevitably run into a bigger man. And that had just happened to Saul. He had been challenged by Goliath, an absolute giant of a man. And so suddenly Saul feels small. And so he sat in his tent and wouldn't come out. And there is a huge lesson for us in the Christian church today in this story. We always seem to look for the big men. We want heroes who are going to stand on a pedestal. And then we're surprised when they do come crashing down. The Apostle Paul warns churches against what we might call big man theology in the early chapters of 1 Corinthians. He says in chapter 1, One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. Still another, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? Yes, it's such a worldly way of thinking about leadership. I hesitate to, to mention names, but just think of the fall of Ravi Zacharias or Mark Driscoll, Jerry Falwell, or in the UK, think of the scandals in the Anglican Church caused by men like Jonathan Fletcher. Now, of course, those men behaved badly. But the people who lionized them in the first place, who gave them prominence, they must also bear some responsibility for the damage done to the cause of Christ. Worldly thinking can creep into our minds 
when we want to have a leader like the nations round about us, to use the language of Samuel. Uh, I get mildly irritated with the authors of those endless articles on the failure of Christian leaders, because the answer is really very simple. If you don't want big men to fall, don't raise up big men. The, The older I've got, the more convinced I am by the concept of plurality of leadership. The New Testament is adamant that churches should be led by a team of elders. Now, that model of leadership is hard work. It also can go horribly wrong. And even when it works, it's clunky and slow. But it is a vital protection against the sort of worldly thinking that desires, you know, the big personality, the razor-sharp apologist who knocks back all his opponents, the thundering orator who rails against the culture outside his church. In contrast to the fall of Saul, we're told about the ascent of David to the throne. David is God's man, and yet he has to spend many years living as an outlaw, running from Saul's armies. He lived in caves and slept rough, constantly being hunted like a wild animal. Although he was God's king, he had no state-sanctioned authority. He couldn't just pull the levers of institutional power. What lessons can we draw from this phase of David's life? He needs a complete contrast to Saul, isn't he? It's interesting, in 2 Samuel, we, we read of David's mighty men. They are noble warriors, men of good character who display courage and loyalty and nobility. But what was the starting point for those noble warriors? Well, when we first meet them in the cave of Adullam, they are in this ragbag of malcontents, a bunch of social misfits. But while in his outlaw years, David forges that bunch of malcontents into a cohort of mighty men. David had this amazing ability to inspire loyalty, and his own innate nobility seemed to transform the character of the men around him. They learned that there was more to life than the grasping for power. By following King David, these men were transformed into people who valued integrity, who were loyal to truth and doing what was right, rather than going for the expedient. So that's the first lesson, I think. We learn that a real leader will transform the character of his followers through his own example. And there is such an obvious parallel here with the situation we as Christians find ourselves in today. We follow a king, but he is like a king in exile. The kingdoms of this world led by the likes of Saul seem to hold all the power. But Christ the king lives the life of an outcast. And the church is like that little ragbag group of misfits that are gradually transformed into mighty men and women of God. Warriors who fight for what is noble and true. Yes, it's such a curious strategy, isn't it? Then I think uh, there's one other aspect of David's approach to leadership in these outlaw years uh, that I think is uniquely Christian. And it's this. He refuses to reduce his life to a power struggle. As the reader sees Saul's life fall apart, as we watch him uh, run the country into the ground in his desire for personal vengeance, we become a bit frustrated with David. Why don't you just kill the lunatic? Why not stage a coup and end this time of instability? Why won't you just take over, David? And that is the question that the author of Samuel explores towards the end of 1 Samuel. And I just want to do a little bit of a deep dive, Ollie, into chapter 25, because I think it's a really important point. So here's the context. David and his band of followers uh, did a lot of good in the south of Israel for ordinary citizens. Um, They protected the farmers and the villagers in a region that was completely lawless. I mean, the Philistines acted a bit like the Vikings in medieval England. They were raiders. But there were also bands of Amalekites and gangs of lawless thugs who, you know, raided farms and villages all around the Dead Sea. 
And David and his men, when they weren't fleeing from Saul, protected the people from the raiders. Now, there was one wealthy rancher called Nabal who lived in that region. He was married to this beautiful, intelligent woman called Abigail. Abigail almost personifies the virtuous woman described in Proverbs 31. She was a decisive woman of substance who managed her household well. But there's one big difference between Abigail and the idealized portrait we find in that uh, last chapter of Proverbs. Abigail was married to a moral fool. Nabal's name literally means fool. He was a drunk who enjoyed a life of luxury. His own servants regarded him as wicked. But he showed his moral folly in an interaction he had with David. So there came this point where David's men were hungry. In fact, they were starving. And they make the very reasonable case to Nabal's servants that they should be given some recompense for having guarded and protected the farmlands from raiders over most of the previous year. The servants agree, but Nabal scoffs at the idea and he chases David's envoys away empty-handed. Now, David's initial instinct here isn't good. Uh, He straps on his sword, he gathers his men to teach Nabal a lesson. But he's intercepted by this wise and godly woman called Abigail. And with utter courtesy, she argues with David. And the heart of her moral argument comes in verse 31. She says, My Lord will not have on his conscience the staggering burden of needless bloodshed or of having avenged himself. And that's the key phrase. Not have on his conscience the staggering burden of avenging himself. Why would that have been so wrong? Because if he had gone ahead with his plan, he would have been acting like Saul. Anyone watching would have said, Oh, well, there you go. That's how life really works. There's nothing in this old world but power. Abigail was a really spiritual woman who knew there was more to the world than the power of the sword. And she saw in David someone who would establish his lasting dynasty, a ruler who would not govern by power alone. And her entry into David's life is so crucial. If David had gone through with his act of vengeance, that great speech would have been forgotten. The idea of a God who sits quietly behind history would have lost all credibility. But by leaving vengeance to the Lord, David was opening up everyone's eyes to the unseen world of moral realities, a world in which truth, justice, and love are real things. That's right. David never reduced life to a power struggle. And so by exercising restraint, by refusing to seek vengeance for himself, he was showing people, as you just said, that moral qualities like truth and justice are valuable and real. And what a lesson that is for a society like ours, a society that has embraced critical theory. We live in a culture that does reduce all of life to an endless power struggle. The oppressor must be overthrown. But there is more to life than that. That's why it's so important that Christians don't become just one more player in the game of power. So the two big lessons from David's life as an outlaw are that he transforms his followers by inspiring loyalty. And by exercising restraint, by not seeking personal vengeance, he shows the world that there is more to life than power. Just to finish up this conversation, Jim, let's think for a moment about 2 Samuel. The first book ends with Saul's suicide. David shows real wisdom in the way he handles the transition of power, bringing the various tribes of Israel together under a single monarchy. But things go terribly wrong when he commits the sin of adultery with a woman called Bathsheba. Scripture doesn't contain a hint of condemnation for Bathsheba. She's presented to us as an innocent lamb. So David's sin is an abuse of power. As a young man, David had protected his flock of sheep from wolves and bears. But now he has become the wolf, a predator who abuses his power. And he then compounds his sin 
by having Bathsheba's husband, the noble Uriah, killed. Now, the really interesting thing about this story is that it is the pivot, it's the hinge on which the rest of the book turns. Of course, David repents. He really does repent. Uh, Just read Psalm 51, and he is forgiven. But although his repentance protected him from facing the penalty of his sin, he's not protected from the consequences of his sin. And that's an important lesson for young Christians to learn. Galatians 6 says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to please their flesh from the flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the Spirit from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Paul is writing to Christian believers here, and the destruction he's talking about isn't eternal damnation. It's the destruction of a ruined life. His point is that sin has consequences. That's right. If I drink a pint of methylated spirits every day and I then repent, I will be forgiven. But my liver will still be wrecked. Now, often God in his mercy does protect us from the consequences of our sin, but it's not something that is promised to us. And the consequences of David's sin with Bathsheba were immense. He he ends up splitting the kingdom because he loses all his moral authority over his own family. David had a daughter called Tamar. Uh, Samuel records the horrible, appalling moment when she is raped by her half-brother Amnon. Once he has raped her, Amnon throws the girl out of his house. I mean, it was an unspeakably vile act. But David does nothing. He no longer had the moral authority to impose discipline on his own family. I mean, we might well imagine Amnon's defence. So the poison of that injustice gets pushed down into the family. And it eventually resurfaces when another of David's sons, Absalom, kills Amnon in an act of revenge. And once again, David seems paralysed. He's incapable of exercising any moral authority. And so eventually, Absalom leads a rebellion against David that forces the king to flee from Jerusalem for a while, to reacquaint himself with his life as a hunted outlaw. And it's uh, it's a terrible story, isn't it, Jim? But as you said, everything flows from that one terrible sin that David himself commits. And I guess the lesson for Christian leaders is that all the authority we have is moral authority. And if we lose our moral authority, then we will not be in a position to rule over the household of God. It's an even sharper lesson for husbands and fathers, isn't it? If a man cheats on his wife, he, he will be forgiven by God if he repents. He may even be forgiven by his wife. But he will have ruined his ability to govern his own children. His moral authority will have gone. Last night, Ollie, I was reading some truly shocking statistics about the amount of unchastity among young evangelicals in the United States. Now, the scriptures are clear and consistent in their message that sexual intercourse should be confined to marriage. And yet an increasing number of young evangelicals are choosing to disobey that command. And there were a couple of aspects of the research that shocked me. Firstly, once a young Christian commits a sexual sin in their, you know, when they're 18 to 22, the research shows that they're likely to have three or four sexual partners in a short space of time. But the other shocking statistic relates to the point we have just been discussing. I have to be really careful here because the subject of divorce is sensitive. There are occasions when one party in a failed marriage is entirely innocent. But the statistics reveal that a young Christian is much more likely to fall into sexual sin if their parents were divorced. And that illustrates the point we've just made about the consequences of a parent losing their moral authority. Those consequences can cascade down to future generations. Yeah, those are sobering statistics, Jim. 
so first and and second Samuel has a really sharp lesson to teach us about leadership, whether it be leadership in the workplace, in Christian service, or in the home. But it also makes us realize just how worthy the Lord Jesus is to govern the universe to come. He won't rule just because he has power. He will rule because he inspires loyalty. He transforms us into men and women of God, and he has all the moral authority that comes from living a stainless, perfect life. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Equip Project podcast. We really appreciate your support and encouragement. Please continue to rate and review the podcast wherever you listen, and we hope you have a very good week.